We are continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark. And today we come to a parable, which is unique for Mark. There, there aren't very many parables in Mark. Uh, we find the parables more in Matthew and Luke. Those are longer Gospels. They also tend to focus more on the teaching of Jesus. Mark's emphasis is more on the actions of Jesus, what he does, where he goes. Uh, but nevertheless, Jesus spoke in parables frequently. Of all the recorded words we have of Jesus, 35% were spoken in parables. And one reason he did this, I think there are several, but one reason he spoke in parables is he was just a, a, a good communicator. And he knew the axiom, if you want to make a point, a point worth making is a point worth illustrating. So if you really want to make a point and drive it home, you've got to help people understand it, feel it, shed a little light on it. It's a good principle for those of you who teach. If you are teachers, think about it. If it's a point worth making... It's a point worth illustrating, as the saying goes. Uh, So Jesus would tell these powerful stories. Uh, One evidence that they were powerful is they stuck with us. I mean, even in pop culture today, people are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son, for example. And most parables, like the ones I've just mentioned, typically are to be read by looking for the main point. What's the main point? Most parables have a main point. Most parables are not allegories. Allegory is when different parts of the story represents different parts of reality. So some classic allegories, for example, are The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or uh, Pilgrim's Progress, great book, right? Most parables are not meant to be read as allegories. In other words, we're not supposed to go in and say, what does this represent and what does that represent? We're supposed to go in and just say, what's the main point? But I say all that to say this, the parable that we're looking at this morning happens to be an allegory. And so we are going to go in and ask, what does this represent and who does that represent? And we're going to discover several truths, what we learn about God, and we're going to talk about what difference this makes for us. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin by reading verses 1 through 12. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired word of God. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We are reminded this morning you speak to us in various ways through your word, various types of literature. You speak to us at times in propositional statements and truth. You speak to us at times in poetry. You speak to us through narrative and history. And you speak to us in parable. 
I pray today as we look at this parable, you will do your work, do your ministry in us, and uh, that you will uh, help us to be faithful to you as a result so we know you better and live more faithfully for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I just want to point out several truths that we learn about God from this parable and what, talk about what difference that makes for us. First of all, I want you to notice we see God's patience in this parable. Verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. Interesting, Mark uses the plural term there, parables, plural, when Mark only gives us one parable. Uh, but if you read Matthew's Gospel, Matthew gives us several, several parables at this point in Jesus' ministry, and we're going to make reference to some of those as we go. But in Mark's Gospel, he gives us one. And as I mentioned earlier, it is an allegory. And I think the simplest thing is for me to just tell you what the different parts represent right up front. I think that will help matters and, and make it simpler as we go. So the owner of the vineyard represents God. He's the owner. And he goes out of town and he hires some tenants to, to, to work the land, to work the vineyard, so they can do the work and he can get the profit. Right? And the tenants represent the religious leadership. All right? Now the servants, the owner sends the servants to the tenants to collect the profit, to collect the money, to collect the, the produce. And the, the servants represent the prophets of God that God sends to his people, warning them, uh, preparing them. Right? Finally, in the parable, they, they send a son. The owner sends his son. Who does the son represent? Of course, the son represents Jesus. And what do they do to the son? They kill the son which, of course, represents what happens to Jesus at the cross. Now, in case you're saying, how, where in the world did you get that? And how can we be confident you're not just making this up? I hope you're asking that question. Like, show me why you think these different parts represent these different things, and you're not just being creative. Uh, first of all, I, I think it's obvious. And I think if you spend much time in the parable at all, it'll become obvious to you. And I think in our time this morning, if you're not convinced yet... You will be by the end. And if not, come talk to me after the service. Right? I'll be glad to talk with you about that. Uh, secondly, notice that the original audience recognized it was an allegory. Right? The, the, the religious leaders know who they are in the story. Look at verse 12. Look at how they respond to Jesus telling this story. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. The religious leaders know he's telling the parable about them. They know they are the tenants in the parable. They know they are the one who kills the son. And guess what? They are going to be the ones who kill the son. Right? And it says in verse 12, they left him and they went away, but we know the rest of the story. They will come back. Right? Uh, furthermore, the original audience would have understood the imagery Jesus uses. We probably don't. We, you probably didn't hear him say there was a vineyard and it had a, a wall around it and there was a wine press and a tower and immediately say, hey, that's Isaiah 5. That's a parable that comes from Isaiah 5. And I, I bet the original audience would have picked it up immediately. And it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a story, a parable, talking about God's judgment that's coming and specifically God's judgment that's coming against the religious leaders. And so uh, they would have been familiar with this. They know where he's going. They know what he's, where he's getting at. And I want us to, to kind of begin by focusing on the servants. Who are the servants in the story? What can we learn about God from them? They, they represent the prophets of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, sometimes the prophets are referred to literally as God's servants. 
uh, verse 2, it says, When season came, he, the owner, sent a servant to them. Verse 3, they took him, the servant, and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another and him they killed and so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. So the servants are not treated well. They're beaten, they are killed, and guess what? This is how God's people treated the prophets of God. This is how the religious leaders historically treated the prophets of God when God sent them prophets. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes the situation. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 38. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned. Tradition says Isaiah was sawed in two. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was beheaded. And the great irony of the passage is the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, they knew this history. They knew what the religious leaders had done historically to the prophets that God had sent to them. And Jesus warns them. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, Jesus says, you guys are, are in the same boat as the religious leaders who killed the prophets. He says, you go and decorate the monuments and you talk real highly about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and you act like you honor them, but if you had been alive in their day, you would have killed them. How do you know? Because here's the, the prophet of God, the son of God standing before you and you're going to kill him. You would have been in the same boat killing the prophets before. But I want you to consider the patience of God. God sends a prophet and they mistreat him and they even kill him. And what does God do? What would I have done? I would have said, I'm done with you guys. I'm not sending you anymore, my people. I'm done with you. What does God do? He's patient. He continues to send prophet after prophet. Even when they're mistreated, even when they're killed, God continues to send them and they have messages of warning and judgment, but that's by God's grace and His mercy that He sends them. We often think the prophets are so stern. You know, they're preaching so stern. Consider it from the perspective that God could have could have remained silent. He didn't remain silent. He loved His people so much. He sent preachers to them. He sent prophets to them to tell them, to warn them, you're in sin, turn from it. Turn back to God. Maybe He'll have mercy on you. So notice the patience of God in, in long-suffering, continuing to, to, to send people to bring the message. And even verse 6 says, finally He sent His Son. God sends His Son to them. The very Son of God is walking among them, talking among them, living among them, warning them, performing miracles among them. Warning them, explicitly telling them, you're making the same mistake as the religious leaders before you. You're going down the same path as them, just as they killed the prophets, so you're going to kill God's Son. Think about the grace and mercy of God in sending His Son to warn them and to tell them explicitly what they're doing, why it's wrong, and why they should not go down the path they're going of. We see here in this passage the patience of God. I'll admit to you, I am not a very patient person. Uh, I really strongly dislike driving in traffic, for example. And I've been doing a lot of that lately because we got kids with activities all over town. And I'll spend, it's nothing to spend an hour driving halfway across town and then halfway back. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a form of sanctification for me. Uh, uh, you know, I would personally rather drive 
20 minutes and have no traffic than drive 10 minutes and be stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Like it, it, it's, it's hard on me. It, it wears me down. Um, I don't like sitting around waiting. You know, if we say we're leaving at 3, let's leave at 3. Let's not kind of sit around and wait. Oh, he's a little late. They're a little late. We actually get out of here by 3.15. No, we, if we say 3, let's leave at 3. Right? That's, I'm, I'm impatient. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's good. I'm, I, I would argue that the, that the Bible speaks to this, and, and we, we ought to learn how to act and react in situations where we are frustrated, and there's a healthy way to respond and an unhealthy way to respond. But the main point I want to make here, it, I looked back at all the places where the Bible talks about patience, and oftentimes patience in the Bible is not so much about the short term which is normally how we think of patience. We define it as being patient in the moment. And I think that's good and, and right and, and be patient in the moment. That's all right. But, but I think the main point of the Scriptures, when the Scriptures talk about patience, is more about staying the course. Like don't give up. Keep going. Don't, don't leave the race. The Christian faith is more of a marathon than a sprint. Right? And in a sprint, a 50-meter dash, you're not tempted to sort of give up. You know, it's just 50 meters. Anybody can finish 50 meters. But a marathon, you know, I mean, you get to mile 13 and you're thinking, what was I thinking? <laughs> what am I doing? You know, and I'm still like halfway there, right? And then by mile 20, you're, you're like, this is foolish. My, my body's telling me stop, right? Why would I keep going? And you just, you just keep going. You just literally put one foot in front of the other. Even when your body's like, no, just stop and rest and catch your breath. And a, a Christian patience, I think, is more like that. It's more like the marathon. You're going to be tempted to give up. You're going to be tempted to throw in the towel. You're going to be tempted to say, why am I doing this? And patience says, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not going to give up. Uh, for example, John, James 5.8 says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice how he connects patience with Christ's coming. Christ is coming. The Lord's returning. He's taking us to the end, right? The end is near. Therefore, until he comes, however long that is, be patient. In other words, be long-suffering. And God's not calling us to do something he hasn't already done. He's patient. Right? Sometimes I think we get impatient with his patience. Right? Because he's patiently waiting. He's not, he is withholding his judgment. He is withholding his wrath, just like he does. He sends the prophets. What do we do? We mistreat them. We kill them. What does he do? He keeps sending prophets. And you might look at that and say, why would you do that? Come and restore things and make things right and get rid of the wickedness. Where are you? Why are you allowing this? Where are you? And it's the patience of God is the answer. That's where he is. It's the patience of God. He's waiting patiently. He's withholding his, his wrath in this season. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you and I should be very grateful for the patience of God toward us. And the patience of God toward us should lead us to be patient toward others. You say, but you just don't understand what she's like. You just don't understand what He's doing. How could I possibly be patient? Well, look at the patience of God. He's patient toward His people when they're literally killing His prophets. And He continues to love them, and He continues to send them, and He continues to withhold His wrath. Right? And so let that be what motivates you. Perhaps there's someone right now that God is impressing on you 
that you need to be a little more patient with because he's been patient with you, right? Perhaps a spouse, in, perhaps a, a, a child, certain child, perhaps a, a parent, perhaps a, a friend at church, a person in your Sunday school class, perhaps a neighbor. Is there someone in your life that God is, is uh, compelling you this morning by his word, by his spirit, say, be more patient with him, with her, because I have been patient with you. We see something of God's patience here. But secondly, I think we see something of God's love in this parable. Look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the owner sends multiple servants, they kill them, and finally the owner sends his son. And I want you to notice it doesn't just call him his son, it calls him his beloved son. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think that's letting us know this is the language that's used to describe Jesus. He's the beloved son. We've already seen this twice before in Mark's gospel. First time, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, the voice comes from heaven and the Father says, You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. And then secondly, in the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, when Jesus is transfigured, the voice comes from heaven, speaking to the disciples, and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He knows what He's talking about. And now we have a third reference to the beloved Son, and it's the owner of the vineyard referring to His beloved Son that He sends, who will be killed. Now, you might say, this is so extreme. Like, who in their right mind would possibly do this? It's so far-fetched for an owner to keep sending servants, and they keep getting killed, and he keeps sending more, and finally he sends his son. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? You know, isn't it a little extreme? And there are two, two answers to that. Number one, it's a parable. <laughs> and parables tend to have extreme things that happen in order to drive home points, right? But secondly... It actually is what God does. It really does reflect reality. It's not just a parable. It's an allegory, and it really does reflect reality. Like he really does keep sending prophets, and the people really do keep mistreating the prophets, and they really do keep killing the prophets. And what does God do in response? He really does send His Son, and they really do kill Him. Right? And so the parable reflects reality. And I want you to notice that Jesus understands who he is in all of this. He has very much a self-awareness, a self-identity. He knows who he is. He is the beloved son. He tells the parable identifying as the beloved son, knowing he will be killed. He, 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 he refers to himself as the one that Psalm 118 is pointing to, the cornerstone. Look, he quotes Psalm 118 in verses 10 and 11. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a psalm, a, a, a verse that's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. And Jesus is saying here, I'm the cornerstone that Psalm 118 is talking about. The cornerstone, the most important part of the building, that the builders rejected. The builders said, throw it away. We don't need it. But God has taken that very stone and said, this is the cornerstone. This is my son. I, I, this is, I'm pleased. Uh, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And consider, Jesus is identifying as the cornerstone of Psalm 118. He's identifying as the beloved Son. 
the beloved son, who, by the way, will be killed. And he knows it, and he embraces it. And he says, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous that the son would be killed, that the cornerstone would be rejected by the builders. Because he understands this is necessary, this is God's plan, this is God's will, that he would be the cornerstone rejected and yet used as the key stone of the, of the building. So Jesus is here knowing what will happen to him, but he's here for love. He's here out of love. He loves these people as they're opposing him. This is the, in Matthew's account, this is where Jesus says, Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See the love of the Son even for those who would kill him. And consider also the love of the Father in sending his beloved Son for this purpose to be handed over. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, his begotten Son. One of the reasons the Bible uses the language of Father and Son to describe the first and second person of the Trinity is because of the nature of the relationship, the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. We understand this language. Right? We, we love our children. We, we don't want anything to harm them. We want them to be safe. We want to protect them. Right? We, 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 there, there's, there's probably nothing or no one that we want what is good for, for, for more than our children. We want, we want what's good for them to happen to them. And when good doesn't happen to them, it hurts us. And the same is true with the Father. Yet the Father loved us so much, He gave His one and only Son. That which is most valuable and cherished to Him, He gave so that you and I might become his sons and his daughters. At bedtime at our house, I always try to make it a point to tell my kids I love them. I go tuck them in and talk to them briefly, and I'll tell them, I love you. I want them to know it. I want them to feel it. I want them to get tired of me saying it. I'll say, do you know that I love you? And then I'll say, I'm proud of you. And they started kind of playing with me. They'll say, uh, you know, I love you more. And we kind of have this back and forth, you know, and sometimes I think they're just delaying going to bed, you know. So it may not be as, as uh, you know, sweet as it sounds at first. Uh, but I will say, they will say to me something like, I love you times one million. And then I've got to come back with something better than that and bigger than that. Well, I love you times one million times two. And then we go back and forth. And, and in the past, we've done how much, you know, how much do I love you? And I finally found the one phrase I can outdo them on. And this is now sort of my closing statement, you know, when it's time to go. I say, I loved you first. And they can't undo that. Like, they can't outdo that, right? You can't argue with that. And I'll say that I loved you before you were born. Like, take that, right? <laughs> I won. Now go to bed. Think about this. Here's the point. The Father loves you. He loves you more than you love Him. He loved you first. He loved you before you were born. And the proof is He loved you so much He gave that which was most valuable to himself, namely his son, in order to make you, who were a rebel, to make you his son and his daughter. Consider the love that the Father has for you, that he would give his son. And now let that be what motivates you, to be patient. You can do this. You can run the marathon. You You can endure. You can keep going. You cannot give up on the race, not walk off, not say, I quit. You can be patient. Long-suffering. Why? Because you are loved by the King. 
The king with all authority loves you. He loves you so much it's demonstrated in history through his son. So look to the son. Look to the love that the father has for you and let that be what motivates you. Let that be the fire lit under you to cause you to keep going and to not give up. Let that be what motivates you to love one another. To love that person who's difficult to love right now. Is there someone that God's laying on your heart right now that God is saying to you, I want you to love him better. I want you to love her more deeply. I want you to love her more sacrificially. And, and here's the motivation. Here's the fire I'll light under you. Look at the love the Father has lavished on you. That you should be called children of God, and so you are. Let that be what motivates you. We see here in this parable the patience of God. We see here in this parable the love of God. But we also see in this parable that his patience will not last forever. And we also see in this parable that his love will not be extended to us forever. It's coming to an end at some point. And that brings us thirdly to talk about God's judgment. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus asked sort of a rhetorical question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He's not going to remain patient forever. He's not going to continue sending prophets forever. He sent his son. He's not going to continue to send his son. He will return one day. He will return for justice. Justice will be met fully one day and fully applied. As one famous preacher from Memphis, Robert G. Lee, said, there will be payday someday. There will be a day when there's a payday. The owner will return. In verse 9, Jesus says two things will happen. He will come back and destroy the tenants. And secondly, he will give the vineyard to others. So let's talk about these two things separately. First of all, he will come back and destroy the tenants. Once again, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. He knows he's speaking to them. He knows he's the son they will kill. They know he's speaking to them. They know he's the son they will kill. We know this once again because verse 12 says, They perceived that he had told the parable against them. Jesus is pronouncing a prophetic word of judgment against them. It raises the question, when will it be fulfilled? And the answer is, like, most, like many prophecies in the Old Testament, there, there ha- already has been a partial fulfillment, and one day there will be a total fulfillment. Right? That's the way many of the prophecies work. It's the way this prophecy works. There is a, 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 an immediate fulfillment with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, and presumably these guys are judged in that. But there's also a a not yet fulfillment that we're still waiting on when one day Christ returns. And it's kind of interesting, verse 6, it says, Finally He sent Him. Finally the Father sent the Son. Finally He sent Him. And that word finally in the Greek is the word eschaton, where we get our word eschatology, which means the last things, the study of the last things, the last days. And I don't know if Mark had this in mind, as he wrote this, but literally, in the end, he sent him. In the end, the Father will send his Son. One day, the Son will return in judgment. It'll be a day when all sin will be judged, all sinners will be judged. It won't just be the religious leaders. 
It will be all rebels, and the reality is that's all of us. We will all be judged. And you have one of two options. Either you can be judged for your sin and not be able to stand up under that judgment because you will be found guilty. Or you can look to Jesus and believe on Him and trust in Him. And He can experience the judgment for you in your place so you can be spared the coming judgment and the coming wrath of God. And it's really a decision for you. And and it seems like a, a simple decision. It seems like an obvious decision. Do I want to experience the judgment one day for my sin? Or do I want to believe in Jesus and have Him be the one who experienced the judgment for my sin at the cross, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne? It's an obvious decision. Why would anyone possibly not go to Christ and trust in Him and be spared the coming wrath of God? And one of the answers to that question is because our hearts are hardened. We're just like the religious leaders who have Jesus standing right in front of them, warning them, you're going down the path of all the religious leaders. Don't go down the path. I'm God's son standing before you. But their hearts are hardened. And in fact, the more they hear God's word and the more they hear God's warnings, the more their hearts become hardened and the more God hands them over to the desires of their heart to do exactly what they want to do. So you can either be a person who continues to come under the word of God and continues to say no to it, and you will continue to be hardened to it, and it's a dangerous path that leads to death. Or you can allow the word of God to soften your heart. For some people, they are hardened by the word of God. For some people, they are softened by it. And they hear it, and they recognize the truth in it, and they recognize even though it's a stern warning, there's grace in it, and they embrace it, and they respond to it, and at the end of that path, it leads to life. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You want that day when Jesus returns to be able to say, finally, he sent him. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus says in verse 9, the second thing that happens, he will give the vineyard to others. It kind of raises the question, who are these others that he has in mind? And once again, if you go to Matthew's gospel, I think it's helpful because in Matthew's gospel, this parable is sandwiched between two other parables. And the first parable is a parable of two sons. And that parable ends like this, Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So the others are people like prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners, people you wouldn't expect to be there. You'd expect the religious leaders to be there. But he says, the kingdom of God is coming to the others. And the, the, the third parable that Jesus tells after that one and after the tenants in Matthew's gospel is the parable of the wedding invitation. When they send out the wedding invitation to the guests and the guests that receive the invitation don't come. And so what do they do? He says, go into the highways and go find others and bring them in that they might sit at the banquet and be a part of the wedding feast and the wedding celebration. This is who the others are. It's the nations. It's the Gentiles. And that's good news for us because we are the nations. We are the Gentiles. We are the others. We are the sinners. We are the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. So this, is, this parable is extremely good news for us when we hear that he took it to the others. But at the same time, this parable is a warning for us. It's a warning for us in the vein of Romans 9 through 11 where Paul says that Israel was cut off because of their faith and their unbelief. And Paul says... And don't think for a second that God won't cut you off too if there's a lack of faith and a lack of belief. 
If God was willing to cut off those who received the original wedding invitation because of their lack of faith and their lack of bearing fruit, if God was willing to extend the invitation to others, right? how much more so? Don't presume on God's grace. How much more so is it true that God will cut you off? So don't, so don't say, oh good, we fall in the category of the others. This is good news for us. Yes, it is. But it's not good news, therefore we're in and we don't have to do anything. It's good news you're the others, therefore make sure you believe and make sure you're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Because as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, Matthew twenty-one forty-three, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You remember the story of the cursed fig tree. Jesus takes fruitlessness extremely seriously. Right? There is coming a day of judgment when God will return. He will send His Son. He will return in judgment. He will judge all things and His judgment will be right. His judgment will be perfect. He will not judge according to a sliding scale. It will be a perfect day of judgment. And there's only one way you can stand up under that judgment. And that's if you trust and believe in the provision God has made for you to be able to stand up under that judgment. It's a wondrous mystery. But it's the mystery that God loved the world so much He gave His beloved Son. His beloved Son who deserved zero judgment, zero wrath, and yet He came for me who deserve all the judgment and all the wrath. And he died in my place. He experienced the curse and the wrath and the judgment for me. Wow. And all I must do is respond to him by believing and trusting on him and bear fruit in, in, in keeping with, with repentance. And so prove to be his disciple. God is loving and he's patient. Wow. He is loving and he's patient. But the Bible says his patience will not last forever. And his offer of love will not be extended forever. There is coming a day of judgment. There's only one way to stand on that day of judgment. Make sure this morning you are trusting in Christ and bearing fruit so that you will be prepared on that day when finally he sends him. Let me pray for us.